Hey everyone, it's Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast, and on today's episode, we're going to be talking about some of the dilemmas and dichotomies of being a studio owner versus just being an individual producer or engineer or record maker. You might not think that there are so many differences between these two, but in reality, these two worlds can clash often and create some conflict. So we're going to talk about some of those considerations some of the things they both have to face and how, when appropriate, you can find compromises between the two. Now, before we get into the episode, I wanted to remind everyone about the giveaway. So I'm giving away a Truman Audio Modified Shure SM7B, which is a normal Shure SM7B upgraded with the Truman Audio Answer preamp. Now, if you're not familiar with that, the Answer preamp is a 25 dB transparent preamp similar to a cloud lifter that installs directly into the back of a Shure SM7. It's really, really handy. I'm using one right now. It sounds great. It's phantom powered and you can bypass the whole thing and use the SM7 as if it were completely stock. Okay. It's really, really cool, creative idea. So to enter the giveaway, all you have to do is go to recordingloungepodcast.com slash sign up and get on our mailing list. Okay, that's how I will announce the winner. I'll also make an episode, but if your name is not on that list, then you are not entered to win. So make sure you go sign up. There's no purchase necessary. It's not a raffle or a lottery or anything like that. It's going to be a random drawing from the mailing list, and I'll be giving away this mic the first week of January. Now, if you're not interested in signing up, please consider using the coupon code that Truman Audio made specifically for us, which is RL Christmas. RL is in Recording Lounge, Christmas as in the holiday. <laughs> so RL Christmas, one word, you can use that at trumanaudio.com from now until January 1st to get 15% off your entire order, whatever that may be. So you can buy the preamp as a kit and install it yourself. It's not that difficult. Or you can buy an existing SM7B and have the preamp already installed in it. So go to trumanaudio.com, T-R-U-M-A-N, audio.com, and use coupon code RLCHRISTMAS at checkout for 15% off your order. All right, let's get into the episode. So again, today's episode is all about some of the dilemmas and dichotomies of being a studio owner versus a producer or, you know, just a sole proprietor, engineer, freelance, you know, record maker of some kind. So we're going to talk about some of these points of conflict or, you know, mindset differences that you might encounter, whether you are both of these things, you know, you're a studio owner and a producer, which many of us are, myself included, or if you are dealing with one or the other, you know, if you're the engineer and you have to work with a producer or studio owner, or if you're the studio owner and you have to work with producers and engineers. So let's get right into it. So the first one on the list is probably the most common, and that is the struggle of paying the bills versus advancing your career. Now, as a studio, the general rule of thumb tends to be, if it pays, you can book days. You know what I mean? Like, pretty much if you are paying the rate to rent the studio, it doesn't matter how old you are, what type of music you're working on, if you're doing an audiobook or a film score or a record or overdubs. If you can afford the studio, you treat it nicely and, you know, (laughs) uh, don't break stuff, you're welcome to record there pretty much for any type of project, right? You can bring your own engineer, you can bring your own producer, you can work with the staff that's there, 
But that is how a studio makes money, by renting out the rooms and recording things there, right? And even having events. You know, there are studios that do uh, wedding receptions and they do live stream things. They do concerts. They do promotional things. They do interviews and podcasts at the studio. And it's a great way to make money by renting out your studio for lots of different purposes. But as a producer, this is not necessarily the mindset. The general feeling of most producers is, I really only want to work on things that I'm actually passionate about, that I like, that, you know, my name is going to be on and and I want to be associated with something that is good. At a certain point, it's not even really about the money so much as it is about doing great work, advancing your career, and creating quality, long-lasting relationships, you know, with with the artists you're working with, and creating a name for yourself. Now, unfortunately, many of us, like myself, and probably like many of you, are owner-operators, which means we own the studio, it's our stuff, it's our gear, it's our rooms, and we're also operating it. So we have to try to find a balance between the two. And this is difficult because, sure, in an ideal world, from an artistic perspective, we would really only work on things we're passionate about, things that we really like, but we also have to keep the doors open. You know, we have to be able to make money as a business so that we can have a place to work on those things that we're passionate about. So if you're like me, you have to find the balance, right? You have to set boundaries for yourself and say, okay, I don't really want to take these kinds of projects because I'm, I'm not the right person for that job. It's music that I'm uh, not passionate about or I don't really get it or I don't like it or there are better people working at that genre than I, you know, so um, in a lot of those situations, I'm forwarding on certain types of projects to other engineers and producers I know. And the nice way that I can tell people is I'm not the right person for this project, right? I think you should call this person or, you know, maybe consider checking out this studio. I think they will do a much better job. And people generally appreciate that. You know, sometimes people get weird about it. Sometimes people get kind of defensive. They're like, well, I want to work with you because I like what you do. But again, it's your name on the project as well. And you have to be at least a little cautious of that because I have done it many times where I've worked with clients that later turned out to be nightmare clients or their music was terrible or whatever. And I hate that my name is on some of those projects. Most of the time, this is not the case, right? Like 95% of the time I listen to the music, I like it and I say, sure, I'll work on it. Now, As I've done this longer and longer, I'm starting to get pickier. And I have the ability to get pickier as I make more money and can charge more. I I have the ability to be pickier about what I say yes to. And I've turned down some projects that would have paid really well. And, of course, the studio owner in my mind is screaming, saying, what are you doing? Why are you turning down this project? Right? But the producer mind, right, that's saying, because it's not for me. I don't really want my name on this. I don't enjoy working on it because I don't really get it. And it doesn't really matter at a certain point if the client loves it or not because their name was always going to be on it, right? And if they love it and you hate it, I mean, that's not necessarily a healthy working relationship, right? That's not the type of thing that we want. A friend of mine has told me before, you know, the biggest danger that he finds with accepting projects like that is not that your name is on it, not that people are going to hear it and judge you and be like, oh, that guy, you know, he's not a good producer or whatever. The biggest danger is that people will hear it and love it and want to do more of it with you. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I think that's a really good way to look at it, um, that, that you don't want more projects like that when people actually like something that you hated, because then you're just going to keep getting calls from more people like that, right? That's how a lot of this business works is by referral. So that's the danger with working on stuff that you just don't like. So try to set boundaries, try to find those places, try to find that line where you can say, you know, this isn't for me. This is not the type of project I want to work on, you know, and you can even come up with compromises like, okay, well, I'll record the project, but I'm not going to mix it or I'm not going to produce it or vice versa. I'll mix the project, but I don't really want to record it or produce it. You can find these compromises to hopefully make some money while still keeping your good name. Another consideration is studio assets versus producer assets. Now, if you're a studio you're kind of expected to have a lot of gear available. You need to be able to record almost any type of project, which means you're going to need a lot of mics, a lot of mic preamps, outboard gear, instruments, amps, drums, keyboard synths, and of course you need a lot of space. A live room, control room, maybe some booths or some isolation areas for guitar cabinets. The list goes on and on. To be competitive and capable in the studio world, I mean, we're talking potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars in equipment and, you know, assets. But to be a producer, you don't really need that much at all. In fact, depending on your specific role and style of producing, as well as the types of budgets you're working with, you may not need any sort of studio setup. You can just rent out other studios to do the work that you need to do. But like, let's assume you still have a project studio where you need to do overdubs and mix and things like that. I mean, in general, you can put most of your money into your computer, your plugins, your software, and then your monitoring, your acoustics, your, you know, maybe a couple great mics, a few great instruments, but they can be more tailored to what you really do. You know, if you're a metal producer, you only really have to worry about buying guitars, pedals, amps, things like that that are going to work really well for metal. But then if somebody comes in and says, hey, I want to record a folk album, and you don't have any acoustic guitars available, you don't have really great spaces for that, you don't have mics, you don't have... That can be a real problem. And, you know, generally individual producers don't have to worry about having lots of channels available, so that becomes exponentially cheaper. They don't have to have 20, 30, 40 mic preamps available to record live bands. They don't have to necessarily have any of that, right? They can just travel from a studio to studio if they need a place to record and then work on it at home in their own production setup. Being an owner-operator <laughs> complicates this, right? Again, you have to find a balance with your tools. You have to prioritize things that are going to be versatile, things that are essential and that solve problems and improve your workflow versus what things are just fun and would be cool to have, right? You have to look much more carefully at your purchases. And, you know, this is something I'm constantly thinking about. Every purchase I make for the studio has to be for a good reason. You need to look at the types of clients that you generally work with, trying to think about what their needs are, not just your own, not just, oh, I, I really want this mic or this plugin or whatever. You need to look at what you're working on. And if you're like me, you work on a lot of different kinds of things. So then you have to distill that even further. Okay, what pieces of gear would work for this genre and this genre? Are there certain microphones that I think would work really well for vocalists like this and vocalists like that? Are there certain guitar amps or snare drums or cymbals that I'm going to get a lot of mileage out of? 
right? That's one of the biggest things that I have to consider. And as I've said on the podcast before, if it's a piece of gear that's going to save me time, I'm pretty interested. You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't matter what genre or what type of session I'm working on. If the piece of gear will improve my workflow and save me time, that's probably a good investment, right? So what sort of things are you lacking? What sort of problems do you have and what needs need to be met? Try to find those gaps and find things that will fill those gaps. And hopefully you'll be able to get the results you want and you'll improve all of your sessions, not just some. Another consideration is professionalism versus comfort. There's always been a funny irony in the studio world, and I've talked about this on the podcast a few times, but a lot of times project studios and home studios feel this never-ending desire to appear more professional, but professional studios often have the same desire to appear more homey and more comfortable. <laughs> and it's a weird balance trying to make the studio look and feel like a serious workplace for professionals while simultaneously making it comfortable and inviting. That's really tough. As a studio owner, it's very easy to get caught up in wanting your place to look as good as possible in the photos, you know? I mean, that's your brand in a way. It's what people see on Instagram or Facebook or social media, YouTube, any of these things. People see it and they will judge it, right? A producer, however, is generally more results-driven. They would record in a tile bathroom if they got the results that they wanted, you know? Like, it, a producer wants to make the artist perform the best, however that may be. And in my experience, most artists perform the best when they're comfortable. They don't perform well when they're intimidated or overwhelmed. I mean, it's really just that simple. Um, and, and, and it could be easy things like the lights are dim or the room temperature isn't too hot or cold or the humidity in the, in the place is not too high or too low. It could also mean maybe the vocalist records their vocals at home. I've done plenty of records where this is the case. Most producers wouldn't care, but a studio might be scratching their heads like, why wouldn't you want to record vocals here with all of our nice equipment? We have vintage mics and look at all the Neumanns and Neves, right? <laughs> but again, a, a producer's not really concerned with that so much as the result. And let's be honest, do you really think an artist is going to feel less stress and more comfort when they're paying a lot more for a big studio? So the point is, you will probably all have to face this sort of push and pull, the desire to appear professional as a studio versus the desire to focus on the artist's comfort. I've had clients, specifically very picky co-producer type clients, who just cannot record vocals in a studio. They have to record them at home. And in my opinion, if you want to survive in this industry, you can't get upset with that, right? Like, you have to focus on what is best for the artist, what is best for the client, right? You can't just get upset and be like, no, I mean, like, I, there was a studio that um, I was working on a record a, a year or two ago, and we called them up because they have a lot of keyboards, and we wanted to add a lot of keyboard sounds to this record, organs, pianos, roads, you know, etc. And they have a lot of the real thing as opposed to virtual instruments. So we called them and we told them what we wanted to do. And we said, you know, hey, how much to rent out, you know, two or three days to record keys on this record. And they basically said, if you're not doing the whole record with us, then we're not interested. That was really strange to me <laughs> because it was like, man, you guys are that focused on like, having your name on this thing, like you won't even rent out your studio to other people. So in that case, to me, that's not really operating as a studio. 
that's more operating as a producer, which is fine. I'm just saying that if you're going to call yourself a studio, you got to be careful with those types of situations and be clear, you know, this is me, the producer, saying, no, I'm not interested in doing that. But I also think from a business standpoint, it's kind of a dumb decision because they lost out on, you know, $1,500 for an easy couple of days to record piano. And, and I mean, it was a good record too. So it wasn't like they would really, really have anything tarnishing their name. You know what I mean? They didn't even ask to listen to it. You know, they didn't even ask, you know, hey, tell me about the music. Show me some of the songs. They could have done that too. That would have been a fair compromise. You know, at least listen to the music and see if it's something they like. I mean, it would be so crazy if they turned down a project that turned out to be like, oh my gosh, I love this music, but they turned it down simply because they wanted to produce the entire record or nothing at all. I thought that was a bad decision, personally. Anyway, getting back to the point, whether you're a studio owner or producer or an owner-operator, you still have to focus on the artist first. It's, it's about them. It's about their music, what they want. Okay. It's not so much about you. Now there are going to be some producers out there who might disagree with me on that because some producers are very interested in their name and their sound and all of this. And I'm just not one of those people. Okay. I am very much, I very much look at this as sort of a service industry situation where it is about my client. If they say they want three bases on a song, I'm going to put those three bases in. Now, I will argue and say, I don't think we need that. I think that's going to clutter up our low end. I think that's going to make the mix difficult. Uh, you know, whatever argument I come up with. But if they, at the end of the day, say, well, that's what we want, I'm going to let them put it in there. A lot of producers would gasp at that fact. They would be like, why would you do that? Why would you? That's stupid, right? But I believe, you know, Artists are not getting paid that well for their music these days. I'm not taking a percentage of their record. I don't do splits generally. So who am I to say that? You know what I mean? It's their music. It's their art. Who am I to tell them how to do it? Now, again, most of these people are hiring me because they trust me as their producer. So it is my responsibility to bring it up. It is my responsibility to say, I don't think we should do that. Um, and I will fight certain things, sometimes pretty hard. But at the end of the day... It is not a hill I will die on. If the client says, we really want this, then what they are telling me, what that translates to is, this is our art, you know, step away on this one. You know, you'll you'll win another one, but like, this, this is something that is non-negotiable. And if that's the case, then okay, they're the ones paying me, right? So a lot of producers might disagree with me on that. I get it. So I got derailed a little bit. Let me bring it back. The original point of this was comfort versus professionalism. And you want to always make sure that you're assessing your clients. Do they like the studio vibe? Do they feel comfortable? Does it feel like they're at home or do they feel like they're in a laboratory walking on eggshells? <laughs> you know, and, and, and remember, who are you trying to serve, right? Are you trying to serve the client? Are you trying to serve yourself? Are you trying to serve the studio, you know, who's paying you? Generally speaking, the client is paying you. So you have to try to make sure that they're comfortable and find that balance between this is a professional studio where, you know, they've got great gear and we're going to get great sounds, but also the artist feels comfortable making their art. Another thing to consider is capability versus efficiency. 
As a studio owner, it's really easy to get obsessed with capability. You want your studio to be able to handle as many types of sessions as possible. I mean, who wouldn't, right? If you're a studio owner, that is your business to, to book it out. Then you want to be able to book it out with as much as possible. Makes sense. More types of sessions you do, the more potential money you can make the more your client list can grow and expand in ways you never thought possible. So it's easy to get obsessed with stocking up on gear and instruments, outboard gear, a console, huge mic collection, cameras, live stream equipment, all of this stuff. But not all clients really care about that so much. I mean, keep in mind, not all of your clients are pro audio people. You know, most of them aren't. They're musicians. A lot of them have no idea what's in the rack. They don't realize how much a console costs. They don't know any of that. You know, and as a producer, we're often less concerned with capabilities or, you know, uh, what types of equipment is available. And do we have 10 different drum kits to audition? You know, in fact, like sometimes the limitations make us more creative. And we're more interested in not losing the moment, losing the impact. And we're really interested in getting the work done as efficiently as possible to be transparent to the artist, to not interfere with their process. And sometimes having more options available, you know, it's like decision paralysis. It's like, all right, let's set up for drums. You need to go check out these 25 snare drums and see which one you like. Is that really efficient or creative? You know what I mean? I mean, maybe, maybe the drummer will be all about it. Maybe they'd love to do that, to really find the perfect snare. But some people might not like that. They're like, man, I just, I I brought my snare. I like it. Let's use it. And you as the producer have to kind of gauge that moment and say, okay, is their snare actually good? Or should we at least maybe try a few? What's the compromise, right? Another example would be like, let's say you have an assistant and they go set up five different vocal mics. They run to five different mic preamps and five different compressors and they set up these beautiful chains, and the idea is to have the vocalist record on all of them and see which one sounds best for the project, similar to the snare problem, right? But a producer in that situation, they put up a great mic, they go straight into their interface, and they hit record. One version takes an hour or two, and the other takes about three minutes. You know, a a producer is typically going to be a little less concerned with what is the absolute perfect microphone for the job But instead, they're concerned with how can we get the most amazing vocal performance possible? The engineer might be a little more concerned with the vocal sound. But again, the producer is more concerned with, is the vocalist inspired now? Because if so, we need to be hitting record now. The performance, the performer, and the song are the bosses to the producer. But to many studio owners or engineers, it's like the sound is the boss. And the sound is not paying you right? Like this, the, the client is paying you to get a great sound, but that's not the entire job description. The client is also paying you to bring their vision to life. And so you have to balance that, bring their vision to life with good sounds. But if your search of the perfect sound is impeding that process, you know, you're not really doing the job. So yeah, sometimes it's very easy for studios to get bogged down with all this talk about capability and accommodations, they can get so obsessed with offering more that they forget to focus on what the art demands. Does an artist really need to be paying a high price for a fancy studio with a kitchen and assistance and a nice console when they can record vocals at home in a bedroom? You know, capability is not always what it's cracked up to be. 
finding the balance here is, man, in my opinion, a lifelong skill. It's something that will always be difficult and it doesn't necessarily get any easier. I'm constantly trying to find that balance of capturing great sounds versus great performances and when to get obsessed over sound versus when to get obsessed over performance. And part of that is because I'm a technical kind of person. I I would say I'm an audio engineer first before I would even say I'm a producer. If somebody asked me what I what I do, I wouldn't say I'm a producer. I would say I'm an audio engineer because that's kind of what I am first. As many of you listeners of the show know, this is a little bit of a geekier, more technical show than one that focuses on, you know, producing so much. But that's just me. Now, something I will say is when you're working with awesome, talented artists, this is actually pretty easy. They'll sound good on pretty much any mic you put them on, and they'll deliver killer performances that keep everyone in the room inspired. And they're usually pretty casual because it's easy for them, you know? Not always, but a lot of times when you're working with talent like that, they're very relaxed. They're very confident that they can get great performances. You put up a mic, any mic, they stand in front of it and sing, and they sound amazing. You know, so in this situation, you still have to be a little careful with how much time you spend, you know, doing setup, routing, EQing, compressing. But again, finding that balance of getting a great committed sound while simultaneously not losing the artist's inspiration or making them wait around, that's a skill. It's something you have to learn. Now, in my opinion, one of the best ways to do this, especially when doing full albums, is to dedicate a day to setup. Let everyone know this is setup day. Set up the stations that you need. You're going to record drums, guitars, vocals. Try to get them, you know, to the point where you could record at a moment's notice, right? This is really common, especially in larger facilities when you can leave a bunch of stuff set up at once, you know, but try to anticipate what might happen in the moment, you know, put a vocal mic near the piano, put a vocal mic in the acoustic guitar station, You get the idea, like this is kind of the classic way to do it. It allows for you as an engineer to get what you need to really spend time and get great sounds and get great setup, something you feel confident with as a starting place. But you also, you know, the entire room becomes a playground of inspiration where people can just walk in and record at a moment's notice. Another thing to consider is versatility versus specialization. As we've been talking about, a studio generally, at least on paper, has far more money-making potential than just an individual producer, especially in the beginning. A studio is capable of offering a wide variety of services, recording, mixing, mastering, editing, events, rehearsals, and of course, recording music is just a small portion of what's possible. You can set up the studio to record podcasts, voiceovers, film work, dialogue, sound effects, sample libraries, commercials, audiobooks, almost anything you can imagine. So this opens up a lot of revenue streams, which is great. A producer, on the other hand, is generally expected to be a little bit more of a specialist. You know, if you hire Dr. Dre, you expect him to be a specialist in hip-hop and rap. If you hire Alan Meyerson, you expect him to be an expert on film scores. If you hire Ira Glass, you expect him to be a specialist on podcasts and storytelling. These lines don't always cross. You know, I find that most clients assume a producer has only one or two specialties. And even though most of the time that's a small portion of what they're capable of doing, people just like to make assumptions. You know, I'm sure Dr. Dre could produce a rock record or a metal record, but nobody really thinks of him like that. They think of him as, you know, this amazing hip hop producer. But 
you know, did anyone ever ask him? <laughs> like, I'm curious, right? Like, for example, I, I, I've told the story on the podcast before about how uh, one time within the same week, I worked with three different clients who were all a bit hesitant to work with me because they thought I specialized in different genres than their music. The pop band thought that I specialized in rock and the rock band thought I specialized in pop. You know, you get the point. It, it's it's weird. It's it's funny, but it's, you know, it's confusing for me. But I see it happen over and over again. People will, you know, pinhole your skills into this one little small area of expertise and they'll just assume, oh yeah, well, that's the type of music that he records or that's the type of music that she likes to produce. That's the kind of music that, you know, whatever it may be, people just make assumptions. When in reality, I would say most of us want to be capable or at least somewhat good at recording lots of different genres, right? You know, me, for example, I have no problem recording basically anything you can throw at me. The studio is open for business. You know, like if you want to record uh, Native American chants, if you want to record bagpipes, if you want to record rock music, if you want to record, you know, voiceovers, I, I'm down. I will record any of that stuff. But when it comes to producing, there are certain kinds of music that I would say I'm better at producing than other genres, right? Like, I tend to work a lot with rock and indie rock and country, folk, pop, even uh, contemporary Christian and worship music. There's a lot of that around here in the South. And so, of course, I, I end up working on a lot of that stuff. And even jazz, I feel comfortable producing all of these. But when it comes to metal or hip hop, I will often pass those off to other producers who are a little bit more hip to like what is cool in those genres right now. You know, a lot of the hip hop and metal that I like is a little bit outdated right now. <laughs> like I like a lot of nineties hip hop or late eighties hip hop. And a lot of the metal I like is from, you know, a little more in like the hardcore, like emo world of the early two thousands. That's not as, it's not as hip right now, you know? So like I usually will pass on those projects, but if those people want to come record vocals or drums or individual pieces, I'm all about it. It's fine. You know, I don't mind recording them. I just am not the right person to produce them. Right. And this description of myself is, I mean, kind of a <laughs> kind of a representation of this entire episode, really, that struggle between what is able to be done versus what I prefer to be done or what I think I would actually do well on. And like many of these things, finding the balance is tricky. And it's somewhat of a waiting game. You know, it takes a long time to get really good at working on lots of different genres. And unfortunately, the only way to do it is to work on a bunch of different genres. You know, a lot of people, especially early on, will focus on getting good at their favorite genre of music, right? Like if you're a metal guy, then you work on metal artists and you get really good at metal. And within a couple of years, you can start producing records that sound really good. But I've seen it happen time and time again. As time goes on, they begin to have some success and then either A, that genre of music starts to not be trendy anymore, B, they get tired of working on that genre, or C, they get sick of doing the same thing all the time and they get burned out. And when people come to them with new projects in different genres, they have no experience in that area because they've spent all of their time focusing on getting good at one thing. So in my opinion, it's much better to keep yourself open at the start of your career, try to work on as much music as you can, try to learn as much as you can about recording and producing and mixing any of these genres. If you confine yourself to one genre, you know, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure, in my opinion. Now, you can get really good at that one genre, and that's something that 
over time, you might end up doing, right? Like over time, you will develop specialties and preferences and things that you will be known for. And as you can charge more, it's not as dangerous to pinhole yourself into one genre, right? Because it's like people know you as being able to really knock out that genre. You know what I mean? And it's like, if you if you have a good reputation, you can charge a lot. You don't have to work on tons of music. But if you want to have a lot of you know revenue streams available, especially early on to get your name out there, to get your reputation up, you got to keep yourself open to working on lots of different things, okay? Another benefit of this is that early on in your kind of formative years, you're opening up your mind to all these different genres and you'll have all this knowledge all across the spectrum to help inform you on how to work with different types of musicians, different types of artists, different types of clients, different types of vocalists. And that is seriously good training because if you only divide your work into one genre or one specific area, you know, a lot of times you're going to be working with the same type of clients as well. And you don't realize what other types of clients there are, what other types of vocalists, how they work, what types of workflow they prefer. If you don't do this, you run the risk of really having no idea how to work with people other than people like yourself. You know, there's a good chance that your vibe and your culture and your style is similar to that type of music that you tend to listen to. You know, if you listen to country music, you might be a country boy. You know what I mean? Like, uh, that's a culture that you get, and it's something you understand. It's it's not bold or dangerous or adventurous so much as it is comfortable and safe. So you're essentially choosing to work with people like you, and it, it is nice. You know, we feel good. It's like a warm hug because it's like, ah, my people, they understand me. But you will learn a lot more from working with people that are very different from you. You know, if you primarily work with rock and you get a chance to work on a jazz album, you might come at it with a really fresh perspective and you might learn some really amazing lessons and you might learn some really hard lessons that it's like, what are you doing? You're screwing that up. That's not how we do it in jazz, you know? Maybe it won't work, but it could be revolutionary, you know? Like, think about all the pop producers who have kept artists like Michael Buble relevant by adopting some pop style into jazz and big band music that can put somebody like Michael Buble on the radio doing pop jazz. You know, this crossbreeding of styles, it might not have happened if certain people didn't really feel like working together on a project, right? So the moral of the story is this. There's nothing wrong with specializing and there's nothing wrong with being versatile. They're both good. But every single owner-operator out there will probably struggle with this. If you want to have a long and fruitful career, I recommend, personally, keeping yourself interested and open and engaged, open-minded, and constantly challenged, right? Try to stay open to working on lots of different kinds of music. Work on podcasts. Work on, uh, you know, film stuff. Work on audiobooks. Work on whatever. Just trying to learn, trying to, trying to get as much experience as you can working with as many different types of music and audio and different types of clients as you can. And over time, you will be able to sort of balance and, you know, shift your weight a little bit onto the stuff that you like the most. But if you've gradually built up your skills in all these different areas, you have a lot more options to make money and be successful. You know, there's always going to be slow seasons and downtime and trends that come and go. So if you've put all of your eggs in one basket, as they say, um, you won't really have any other skills to sustain you in those times. You might get in trouble. 
I mean, think about it. During the pandemic, right? And we're still going through it again. We've got new variants. We've got all this stuff, right? Like, if you were the type of person who really only worked with, say, uh, orchestras or large vocal groups or choirs or, or jazz big bands, you probably had a really hard time finding work during the pandemic. But if you also felt comfortable recording podcasts or audiobooks or voiceovers or small acoustic and vocal sessions, you could get away with doing that with one or two people in isolated rooms, right? Like that's just the most recent example I can think of. But there's a lesson there. And to me, the lesson is try to focus on versatility early on and learning as much as you can and then try to specialize. Even though it might seem a little slower, your career might not take off quite as quickly, you know, I do think it's better in the long run. One final consideration I want to give you is hiring the studio versus hiring the person. Now, I find there are generally two types of clients that you'll get as an owner-operator. There are clients who are hiring you because of your studio, your capabilities, your gear, your rooms, whatever. And then there are clients who are hiring you because of you. And sometimes it can be difficult to know the difference. You know, typically speaking, if someone is just coming to record they're not necessarily explicitly hiring you to be a producer or even a co-producer or really even what they might call their engineer. You're essentially just setting up mics, making takes, hitting record, and there's a good chance that they hired you because of your studio and your gear. They don't necessarily care about you or your work or even your ears. Now, to some degree, I still contend that there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you're still making money. If it pays, then they, they can book days, right? It's just a different working relationship. It is important to recognize, however, that they aren't really concerned with your skills or what you have to offer so much as they are your space, your gear, and the hope that you can just complete the job. That's really it. However, the majority of the time, I find your best clients are the ones that hire you because it's you. You know, it, they want what you bring to the table. They respect you. They like your ears and your brain and how you approach music. And if something were to ever happen to your studio, if you started working someone else, if, if your studio burned to the ground, they would still hire you because they like working with you and they trust your ear. They would say, hey, can you come produce this project at this other studio? Because it, I, we don't really care about your studio. It's you we want. That's a very different relationship than just hiring a person to operate a studio, right? Now, I know some engineers that refuse to do the former. They don't want to work on a project unless they are the producer or unless they are the engineer or unless that relationship is there. And I, I get it. But in a lot of modern music markets, that's not necessarily super sustainable. There are times when you need to put your ego aside and just hit record <laughs> without offering any producer perspective to the artist. I've done plenty of sessions like that where people come in and, and they it's basically made clear you are not producing this. You are just engineering. You're essentially our record robot for the day and we don't need any input. Now, of course, they're nice about it. I'm saying it like kind of mean, <laughs> but, you know, it, that's a conversation that is, you know, something needs to be had. And it's healthy to do. It, it, it's, it's healthy to train yourself to put aside your ego and not speak up and just hit record. Just get good sounds, hit record, and that's it. That's the job, right? I may have told you the story on the podcast before, but I've been fired from a session before because I inserted myself into a conversation between the artist and the producer, and I tried to offer a little bit of like producer-ish advice to the artist 
and it wasn't really my place and they got offended by it. Now I was just trying to help, um, you know, and, but it was not my place to offer that advice. I was hired to engineer. That's it. The relationship, the trust, that sort of like interpretation of tone and all that stuff wasn't there. I hadn't built that up with the artist. And so I overstepped the line just enough to make them upset. You know, even later after the session, you know, um, the producer told me like, hey, it doesn't matter if the advice was spot on. Uh, in fact, you were right. That was, that's not even the point though. The point is that you, you crossed a trust barrier that you hadn't established. It was a hard lesson for me to learn, but you know, it's a lesson that I really took to heart and it's a mistake I have not made again. It's something you really have to make sure you establish and understand what is my role here? What is the place? And, and you don't have to take those sessions if you don't want to, but when you do, or if you do, you have to understand that role, right? You have to understand, are they wanting my input or am I just basically hitting record for them? Okay. It's really, really important to understand that. So in summary, the studio mindset and the producer mindset will often be at odds. So if you've ever felt that push and pull, especially as an owner operator, like many of us are, you're not alone. It's a very difficult thing to balance. If you feed one side or the other too much, you might end up in an uneasy situation, either financially or mentally. You know, you don't want to hate your job, but you also don't want to make no money. (laughs) You know, it can be really soul sucking to work on music or projects that you're not into, but it pays the bills and it allows you to build your business so that when you do work on things that you're passionate about, artists that you really love, you have capabilities, you have experience, you have all this stuff ready because you've been able to invest in it. You know, and over time you can shift more into working on the stuff that you're really passionate about and turn down some more of the sessions that are just a, you know, paying the bill kind of session, right? Or perhaps you could hire an assistant to handle those situations or hire another engineer to work with you to handle those sessions while you get to work on the things that you love, right? But that's a topic for another episode. So I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I hope it's given you some things to consider about some of the push and pull about the producer mindset versus the studio owner mindset and how that plays into the owner operator's view on all of it. Uh, If you have any questions or comments, send me an email, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Again, make sure to sign up for the mailing list at recordingloungepodcast.com slash sign up to get entered to win a Truman Audio modified Shure SM7B. I'll be giving that away the very first week of January. I'm going to try to get one more episode out of the podcast this month. In the meantime, use coupon code RLChristmas at TrumanAudio.com to purchase your kit or your pre-installed answer preamp in an SM7B, and you can get 15% off that order with that code, RLChristmas. No spaces, you know, just like that. I'll talk to you next time. See ya.